All right, good morning, everybody. So as Chase said, we are now in our second week in our Conversations with Jesus series, where we're looking at the places where Jesus has an actual dialogue with somebody. And this week, we're looking at the longest one-on-one conversation that Jesus has in the Bible with somebody. And it is with a woman at a well. And before we look at the conversation itself, I want us to recognize something very significant, which is that this conversation should have never happened. Um, Because in the culture that Jesus was in, there would have been at least three reasons that a Jewish teacher would not have been willing to engage in this conversation. So, first reason, the person Jesus is talking to is a woman. And in those days, if a man had a one-on-one conversation with a woman whom he was not married to, people had a tendency to assume that something sexual or romantic was going on. So if a Jewish rabbi was concerned about his reputation, he would avoid initiating a one-on-one conversation with a woman. So that's first reason. Second reason, this conversation partner is a Samaritan, and Jews didn't associate with Samaritans, because they considered them to be a a twisted version of Judaism. Uh, the The Samaritans were descendants of people, Jews, who had intermarried with foreigners. And so, as a result, their religious views had been influenced and warped. So, Jews said, it's better just to stay away from Samaritans and their influence. And then third, this woman was of questionable moral reputation. Uh, We're going to find out through their conversation that this woman is living with a man that she's not married to, which is very taboo in that time, and Jesus is very aware uh, that she's doing this, and yet he initiates the conversation with her. So he he risks his moral reputation by talking to somebody who has questionable moral reputation. So you might say that there's three kinds of barriers here to Jesus having this conversation. There's a gender barrier... There's a religious barrier, and there is a moral barrier. And yet, Jesus initiates the conversation, right? And not only does he initiate the conversation, but it becomes the longest one-on-one conversation that is recorded in the Bible between him and somebody else. You know, I want us, before we even get into this, we just have to take a moment to recognize how significant that is. That God in the flesh, God incarnate, chooses this person, right, this disreputable Samaritan woman for the honor of being the person that he has the longest one-on-one conversation with in the Bible. See, that tells us something about what God is like, right? It tells us that our God is not the kind of God who likes to leave people out. Amen? All right. But before we get ahead of ourselves... Uh, Let's look at this conversation that was never supposed to happen. So if you have your Bibles, you want to follow along, open up to John chapter 4, starting in verse 4. John 4, starting in verse 4. Now he, meaning Jesus, had had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, 
And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, so stop for a moment here, get our bearings. So Jesus has been traveling with his disciples, but at this point he's alone. And the text doesn't tell us why he's alone, but we're going to find out later. And the reason is because he sent his disciples off to get some food. So he's been traveling, he's alone, he's thirsty, and so he comes to this well. And it's a well that actually has historical significance for both Jews and Samaritans. Uh, It's Jacob's well. And he comes upon it, we're told, at the sixth hour. Now this detail is very significant because the sixth hour was the hottest time of the day. The time when the sun was most intense because the sixth hour would have been six hours after dawn, so that's about six hours after 6 a.m., so it's, it's noon. And in those days, when you went to draw water from the well, if you had any sense, you would go during the cooler time of the day. Okay? You would either go in the early morning or in the evening. And what was custom in the culture of the time was that the, woman, the women in the town would go and draw water. They would go as a group and draw it together. And they would either go early morning or evening, or both. Uh, But in a moment, we're going to see that the woman that Jesus talks to at the well uh, will arrive, and she is arriving at the well at the hottest time of the day when no one else is there. Now, why would she do that? Well, there's really only three possibilities. One is that she's been ostracized by her community, Two is that she feels so much shame herself that she is um, purposely removing herself from the community so she doesn't have to see anybody, or it's both. And that might not be immediately clear when we're just reading this on the surface, but to any ancient reader, they would have seen that this woman is somebody who carries shame. That's why she's coming to the well at the hottest time of the day. So she's in isolation, but Jesus doesn't let her remain in that isolation. So continuing in verse 7, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? That doesn't sound to us like an unreasonable request. They're at a well, it's hot. Uh, But if we know the cultural context, we realize this is a big deal that Jesus does this. And right away, the text reminds us that it's a big deal. Because you'll notice in your Bibles that there's this parenthetical note. And it says, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, why is that parenthetical note right there? Why aren't we just told it earlier in the story? It's because the writer wants to emphasize, Jesus is alone. Right? The disciples aren't around. He's initiating, he's asking a woman for a drink at the well when nobody else is there. This is kind of scandalous. Okay, so um, so we're reminded, because of this parenthetical note, respectable Jewish teachers do not talk to women alone, never mind women of poor reputation. And then the woman herself reminds us of what a big deal this is, because she responds by saying, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? In other words, you're a Jewish guy, I'm a Samaritan woman, we don't talk. What are you doing? And then continuing in verse 10, Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, 
and he would have given you living water. In other words, if you knew who you were talking to, you would not be preoccupied with the question of what's socially acceptable. If you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking me for water. And notice, Jesus describes the kind of water that he has to give as living water. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that the water is moving. Uh, The freshest and the best kind of water isn't the kind of water that's stagnant, that's just sitting there and can grow bacteria, right? The best kind of water is the kind of water that's flowing. I remember when uh, a couple of us from the church were on a hike last fall on the Appalachian Trail. You always wanted to find the water that was moving. That was the water that was most likely to taste good. Uh, And what Jesus is saying here is, I have the best, the freshest, uh, you know, the most refreshing kind of water to offer. Now, what the woman doesn't realize, but we know now, uh, is that Jesus isn't talking about physical water, right? He's talking about a kind of water that is meant to satisfy the thirst in our souls. So you might describe that as our thirst for truth, uh, our thirst for meaning, for purpose, for love, for acceptance, that kind of thirst, spiritual thirst. But understandably, this woman doesn't realize that Jesus is talking in metaphorical terms. And so she takes him literally, and she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? In other words, our ancestor Jacob, we regard him as a great man. He gave us this well. But even he couldn't give us living water, right? He just gave us stagnant water. So are you saying that you're you're even better than him, better than Jacob? And then Jesus says essentially, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I am better than him. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, I want us to realize how amazing this is, what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that the spiritual water that he has to offer is a cure for thirst. It's not just a temporary fix, but it's a cure. And not only is it a, a cure in this life, but it's an eternal cure for thirst. What he has to offer transforms us from being like dry wells to being overflowing springs. And and one way of thinking about this is that Jesus transforms us from being people who are thirsty to people who actually have water to offer other people who are thirsty. Here's one way of uh, thinking about this. Every one of us is born with a thirst in our souls, uh, a thirst for love, and acceptance. And one way of putting that is we all long to be fully known and at the same time fully loved. We thirst for that in the deepest parts of ourselves. And so what we do is we look to each other to be fully known and fully loved. But the problem with that is we're all trying to get something from somebody else that we don't have ourselves. And so it's like everybody is thirsty and everybody's trying to get water from everybody else. And it just, it doesn't work. You can't get water from another dry well. 
And so what happens is we end up staying thirsty, and then we start resenting other people for not satisfying our thirst. But what Jesus is saying is that he and he alone has the power to satisfy our thirst. Because unlike any human being, Jesus actually has for us the love and acceptance that we thirst for. Because he knows us fully, as only God can. Every detail of us, he knows all of it, even even the worst of it. But instead of choosing to destroy us or leaving us to suffer in our sin, he chooses to save us. That is what is revealed through the cross. That Jesus knows everything about us, but even so, he would rather suffer and save us than let us be destroyed by our sin. So Jesus has the love and acceptance that we are thirsting for. And when we go to him for that love and acceptance and choose to find it in him rather than in somebody else, it's as if the well of our souls starts to overflow. And instead of being a dry well, it starts to turn into an overflowing spring. And then what ends up happening is that people who are thirsty, when they interact with us, they realize that they feel a little less thirsty. Because when we're getting water from the real source of water, we actually have some water to give. When we know that we are loved and accepted, that enables us to love and accept other people. When we know that we have been forgiven by God, that enables us to forgive other people. And when we know that God has been generous with us, that frees us to be able to to be generous with other people. And that is why the best relationships, the best human relationships, whether they're romantic or not, are are the kind of relationships where we're not trying to get our sense of self-worth and acceptance from each other. The best kind of relationships are the ones where each individual in the relationship is already getting their sense of worth and acceptance from God, and then in turn has water to give one another. But if we're just starting with trying to to get from each other something that we don't ultimately have first from God, we end up thirsty. So Jesus says that he has this living water that can satisfy thirst forever. And then the woman, who continues to take him literally, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. It's a reasonable response. And then Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. Now, why would he say that? That's kind of a weird thing to say, right? I have living water. Oh, okay, give me some. Go get your husband. It doesn't really seem to follow, right? Well, after reflecting on this, I want to present two possibilities for why Jesus says this at this point. First one, and I really think this is, this is true. I think Jesus says this because he doesn't want this woman to think he's hitting on her. Uh, remember, it was already taboo for a man to be talking one-on-one with a woman, right? But not only that, in Judaism, wells actually had a reputation for being places where men met their wives. Because if, you, if you've read some of the stories in the Old Testament, you'll see that happens. Uh, Jacob, 
this is Jacob's well, right? Jacob met his wife, Rebekah, at a well. And Moses met his wife, Zipporah, at a well. And so here we are at a well, a man and a woman, and they're talking, and the man is telling the woman that he's going to be able to satisfy her thirst forever. And it just seems like maybe Jesus' intentions could be misconstrued, right? And so Jesus, in his wisdom, tries to demonstrate that he's not interested in her in that way, right? By saying, hey, before we talk more, you should get your husband and, and come back. Um, you know, if you're a married woman and a man outside of any professional context says to you, we should get dinner sometime, that would probably make you a little uncomfortable, as it should. But if the man said, hey, you and your husband should come over for dinner sometime, well, that's different, right? And I, that's kind of like what Jesus is saying here. You, you and your husband, you should come over. Um, I'm going to go off on a quick tangent here because I think we can learn something from Jesus here about interacting with the, the opposite sex. I think there's an interesting model for us here because I think individuals and cultures sometimes fall into one of two extremes when it comes to the way that the sexes interact. So one extreme is to assume, well, men and women are just always going to see themselves as sexual objects, objects so they can't interact. Um, and this, this extreme uh, was common in Jesus' culture, right? The other extreme, which is probably more common in our culture, is to have this attitude that just thinks, oh, men and women, they'll be able inter to interact, and it will be completely non-sexual no matter what. Um, and here's a case in point for that. So, you know, it used to be that with colleges, um, they were, there were men's colleges and there were women's colleges, because people thought, well, men and women are, are not going to be able to interact in a college setting and focus on learning, right? And then over time, we thought, well, that's a little extreme. So, you know, men and women, the colleges were combined, and we had co-ed colleges. Uh, but housing was still in separate places, right? There was the men's dorm over here and the women's dorm over here. And then over time, like, the dorms kind of became combined. So, like, one floor was men, the other floor was women. But by the time I was in college, like, the floors usually had men and women on the same floors, right? And I think now there are some colleges that are just like, well, you can just have gender neutral housing too, and you can even have a roommate that's a man or a woman if you want. I don't know how common that is. But what I'm trying to say is there's two extremes here, right? And what we see here is Jesus modeling something different than either of those extremes. Because, of course, first he rejects the first extreme which is, assumes a man cannot relate to a woman in a non-sexual way, right? He blows that apart because he initiates conversation with the woman. He talks to her, he views her as a human being, right? But at the same time, because Jesus says, go and get your husband, he's showing that he doesn't want to pretend that we're asexual beings, right? He still wants to uh, respect uh, standards and boundaries of, of propriety, um, and so I think Jesus models for us a, a healthy middle ground here, right, between those two extremes. So he says, go and get your husband. So we shouldn't assume that men and women cannot interact except in a sexual way, but at the same time we shouldn't pretend 
that we aren't sexual beings either. That's what Jesus does here. He models the healthy middle ground. So that's one reason why Jesus says, go call your husband, okay? Um, but I think there's at least one other reason, and it's probably the primary reason. And it doesn't become clear until we read just a little bit further. So continuing in verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And what Jesus says here reveals that he knows things about this woman that he has no business knowing. Okay? He, he knows things through supernatural revelation. And Jesus knows through supernatural revelation that this woman has been married five times and that currently he, she is living with a man who is not technically her husband, which in that culture would have been a shameful thing. So when Jesus says, um, go get your husband, what he's doing is he's trying to get this woman to talk about the very subject that she's ashamed of. So he's trying to get her to talk about the reason why she's out at the well during the hottest part of the day when no one else is there. It's kind of like if you noticed that your kid had eaten all the cookies in the house, and then you said to your kid, why don't you go get me a cookie? It's not because you want a cookie. You know you're not going to get a cookie, right? But what you want is for your child to talk about the very thing that they're probably ashamed of. You're trying to draw them out. And similarly, that is what Jesus is, is doing here. And you know what? That is what Jesus wants to do with us too. Jesus is not a fan of small talk. <laughs> Jesus wants us to talk about the matters of the heart. Okay, he wants us to talk about that thing that we don't want to talk about, but is always on our minds. He wants us to talk about the elephant in the room. He wants us to talk about our shame, our fear, our anxiety. And whatever the elephant is in the room, he wants us to open up about it. And in this case, asking this woman to go get her husband is Jesus' way of getting her to talk about the elephant. Now, you might be wondering, well, why has this woman had so many husbands? She's had five husbands. Well, the truth is we don't know. And we shouldn't be quick to assume that we do know. One possibility is that every one of her husbands died. So she's been widowed five times. But it seems unlikely that she would have that poor of luck with husbands. You know, that's, that's really bad. So it seems more likely that every one of her husbands found something wrong with her, something wrong, and so they divorced her. Now, if we assume the worst about this woman, it could be that she is a serial adulterer. She cheated on all of her husbands. Her husbands found out, and they divorced her. That's a possibility. But that's the worst-case scenario for, for her in terms of her character. Another possibility is that she couldn't bear children, and maybe each man she was with, after a while, realized this woman is never going to give me any children, and so they divorced her. And if that's the case, it would help to make sense of the situation that she is currently in, because if a woman couldn't bear children, she often felt a sense of shame, which could lead to this isolation from the rest of the community. 
And in addition, if she had a reputation for being a woman who couldn't bear children, she would have trouble finding another husband. And given the situation that she's in right now, it appears that the only man who is willing to take her in is a man who is not willing to marry her, but does want the other benefits of being with her. So, in my opinion, that's the most likely scenario of what's going on here, but again, we can't know for sure. But whatever the case, this woman has had a very rough life, right? And now she is living in a state of shame and isolation. Now, something I want us to notice is that Jesus points out the source of her shame, right? He says, the man you now have is not your husband. And you can tell that in the way Jesus does this, he's not condoning uh, this behavior. He is, after, the, after all, the one who brings it up, right? But notice something else. He doesn't scold her, right? He doesn't say, um, you know, how, how could you do this, right? He just acknowledges it and continues on from there. You know, I think the way that Jesus speaks to her communicates, I am fully aware of your situation. I'm fully aware of your elephant in the room. I know, but I want to talk to you anyway. And this is a hard example for us to follow, but it's a great model for us. You know, when someone's sin or shame is revealed, we need to learn how to respond in a way that doesn't condone the sin, but at the same way doesn't act shocked or appalled, right? We need to be the kind of people where someone, when someone's sin or shame is revealed, they're surprised by how well we handle it, you know? We're not... We're not overcome with shock. We don't go, oh, ew, how could you do that? I can't even look at you. I can't even believe it. No. We need to be the kind of people who can hear it and continue on with the conversation. Or we need to be the kind of people who are aware of the sin and the shame and are still willing to initiate the conversation. Right? That's the Jesus-like thing to do. That's what Jesus does here. And doing that, finding that balance between not condoning but you know, still uh, not, not acting uh, overly upset or shocked, that's a hard thing to do. It's an art. It's not a science. But right here, we see Jesus modeling that, and it's something to strive for. All right, so Jesus has just tried to get this woman to talk about the elephant in the room, right? To talk about her shame. But she doesn't take the bait. She doesn't want to talk about that. Uh, she says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Um, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place of worship must be in Jerusalem. So do you see what she does here? She tries to get the attention off of her and onto a theological debate. This stuff about my shame, this stuff about the elephant in the room, uh, that makes me uncomfortable. So let's talk about that whole question of which mountain do we worship on? You know, I see you're a prophet. That must mean you like to talk about religious-y things. Well, here's a religious conflict that people debate about, right? Let's talk about that instead. And you know what? People do this sort of deflection all the time. We religious people are very good at it, right? Uh, we can spend years in church ignoring the elephant in the room, right? The elephant could be our relationship with our mother or father, uh, maybe the elephant could be personal doubt about the truth 
of our faith. Uh, Maybe the elephant is abusing our spouse or habitual lying or sexual sin or greed or anxiety. And we could spend years in church ignoring that elephant because anytime anybody gets close to really talking about it or getting us to open up about it, we, we, feel, we feel uncomfortable and we change the subject. And we say something like, so what about predestination? <laughs> or uh, what is the best trans- Bible translation anyway? Because I want to make sure I'm reading the right one. You know, Let's have a fight over which one is the best one. Or how did Noah get all those animals on the ark, right? And even those, those kinds of questions can be very sincere and well-meaning. They can also be just a way of deflecting attention off the things that really matter, off the heart issues, right? Off the stuff that makes us really uncomfortable. You know, sometimes, sometimes nothing is better at keeping us from what God is trying to do in our lives than just a good theological debate. So the woman tries to get Jesus' attention off of her and onto theological debate. Now, Jesus could have said, hold on, woman. Don't change the subject. I'm trying to get to the heart of things. But he doesn't do that. He's actually gentle and patient with her. And so he lets her steer the conversation somewhere else. And once again, I think this is a good model for us to follow. We should try to get people to talk about the elephant in the room. But if when we do it, they're like, I don't want to go there, don't push too hard. If they try to bring up some theological thing, it's okay to talk about that. Indulge them, at least for a little while. At least they know now that you know about that issue, and when they're ready, they'll talk to you about it. Right? But you don't need to push too hard. It's going to be a really sensitive thing. It's enough to just bring it up a little bit. So Jesus indulges her question, and he uses it as a teaching opportunity. So continuing in verse 21... Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, it's a little hard to understand what Jesus is saying here, but what he's saying here is amazing, and it's so significant. First of all, notice, Jesus actually isn't neutral on the debate issue that the woman raised. He does have an opinion on it, right? He says, salvation is through the Jews. The Jews worship Uh, what they know. The Samaritans do not. Salvation is through the Jews. So he has an opinion. He thinks Jerusalem is is the right place for the temple. That's where worship is supposed to be taking place. But notice, even though Jesus picks a side, he makes it very clear that this woman is in no way excluded from what God is doing. Right? Because he says, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, when you will worship the Father. And what Jesus is saying here is that a time is coming when the temple will not be necessary 
and we won't need to debate over what is the right place to worship. Now, why is that? Because a time is coming when people will worship in spirit and truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, really quick, this, is, this, is, this concept is so significant, so amazing, okay? In those days, people believed that in order to worship, you had to go to a place, a building, where the presence of God was located, right? And for the Jews, that place was the temple in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans argued that it was somewhere else. But if you were going to worship, if you were going to experience the presence of God, you had to go to a temple. And when Jesus says, in a little while, that's not going to matter because the true worshipers will worship in spirit, what he's saying is that the presence of God that dwelled in the temple is now going to dwell in you. The glory of the temple is going to be in you. Now, that in itself is an incredible idea. But we need to realize how incredible it is that Jesus is saying it to this woman, right? This Samaritan woman of ill reputation. He's saying the Spirit of God is going to dwell in you. The glory of the temple that people travel all around to come and see, the glory of the temple is no longer going to be necessary because the glory of God is going to be in her, in you. That is a crazy idea. That's insane. Now, skip down a few verses to verse 28 to see her reaction to this. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of town and made their way toward him. Now, If you read this story closely, it can be easy to miss what's just happened here. But do you see, okay, this woman who was filled with shame, this woman who hid from everyone and went to the well at the hottest time of day so she could avoid interacting with anybody, this woman just ran into town and is talking to everybody, right? She's not in hiding anymore. And notice what she's saying to people. She's saying, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And, And... We know what everything I ever did is, right? I've had five husbands, and the man I'm living with right now isn't my husband. This woman is now going and talking to everybody. Not only is she talking to them, but she's talking about the very thing that she was ashamed of. She's talking about the elephant in the room. She's talking about the thing that was keeping her hidden. She's come out of hiding. So what brought her out of hiding? What did that? There was something about the conversation with Jesus that made her switch. Well, if I had to guess, the thing that pushed her over the edge was the fact that Jesus was able to name her shame and the source of that shame and yet still say, a time is coming when you will worship in spirit and truth. In other words, despite what you or anyone else might think, God wants to fill you with his glory. Despite what you or anyone else might think, God wants to fill you with his glory. If this morning you are feeling shame, I want you to put yourself in this woman's place and hear God saying that to you. Despite what you or anyone else might think, God wants to fill you with his glory. He knows everything about you 
but he has not rejected you. He notices you, he loves you, and he offers you the water of life. So don't hide in shame from him. Come to that well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that when you revealed yourself as a man on this earth, you sought out the least of these. And we thank you, Lord, that you revealed uh, that you are not a God who wants to leave anyone out. And Lord, I pray if, if there are any of us here who are feeling left out, who are worried that we should be left out, that we would not hide from you and that we would not hide from others, uh, but that we would come to you and we would receive that water of life, uh, that love and acceptance that only you can offer. In Jesus' name, amen.